0: Welcome to the BICOM Podcast. I'm Samuel Nerding, Research Associate at BICOM, and I'm delighted to welcome on this episode, Dr Sanam Bakila. Sanam is a Deputy Director and Research Fellow at the Middle East and North Africa Programme at Chatham House, where she leads projects work on Iran and the Gulf. Sanam also teaches in the Middle East Studies Department at the John Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies in Italy. Sanam, it's great to have you back on the BICOM Podcast. Thanks for joining
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So let's start with the the nuclear talks in Vienna. Um, I guess you can say part one of the seventh round of talks ended last week, and it was the first time that the new Iranian government under President Raisi attended the talks. What is your overall sense of how the talks went? Uh,
1: Well, there was a lot of anticipation, uh, because this is the first time that P5 signatories uh, were interfacing with the new um, negotiating team. There was also a lot of pessimism uh, because uh, the delay between June and November uh, was quite long. uh, And of course, um, the the sense um, that everyone has had through the media messaging is that um, the new Iranian negotiating team is taking a harder position, um, particularly on sanctions relief and the issue of assurances. Uh, my sense is that from the uh, from the signatory side, or let's say the American and the European side, um, on the one hand, I think they weren't particularly surprised; um, they expected a, a harder line from Tehran. I think there was disappointment, though, that the Iranians were predictable and. Um, didn't pick up uh, the negotiations from where they left off in June, but rather um, almost uh, wanted to start over. So uh, as I understand it, there was a a unified pushback in an effort to make clear that uh, uh, Europe and the US doesn't have the appetite uh, to start over.
0: I wonder if we can kind of, um, I'm unpack both those kind of the, the US, UK, E3, and then the Iran positions. Maybe we start with, with the UK. Um, for the last kind of two episodes, we've had uh, some from the US and some from Israel. I suppose having you from the UK, be good to kind of get your sense on, on the UK's position. And last week, foreign, Israeli Foreign Minister Yair Lapid visited the UK and he spoke to Prime Minister Johnson and Foreign Secretary Liz Truss. The reader from Israel was that Lapid came to the UK to try and harden its positions in talks in Vienna. Out of the three European countries in Vienna, where does the UK stand in terms of its toughness in negotiating with Iran?
1: I think that the UK has maintained a very aligned position with Germany and France. Um, And uh, that has been surprising for uh, many observers, uh, This by Brexit, Uh, but um, British interests are aligned uh, with European ones uh, right now. Uh, And um, I think there is deep concern in Whitehall uh, that the clock is ticking. uh, And and so uh, there's a bit of urgency um, here uh, to uh, try and arrive at a deal um, because I think the consideration is that the alternative is extremely dangerous um, both for Europe and the UK above everyone else
0: um, obviously you said that the UK they, they have this sense of urgency do you think of you think that's shared in the US and also kind of how far can the UK and, and maybe the e three influence the us negotiation position I
1: think that you know what we're we will see if the talks uh, do fall apart mm-hmm. is that the UK and and Europe um, will align with the United States um, And there are various scenarios of what that alignment will look like. One of them of course is uh, a return to the Security Council and um, more more sanctions, coordinated sanctions on Mm -hmm. Iran. Um, I don't expect though that that scenario will will see the UK or any other um, uh, state uh, be able to influence the Russians and the Chinese in this space.
0: Maybe, given your expertise on Iran, we can come look at the the Iranian position and and its stance. Um, last week, it provided two documents at the talks, which Western officials have said were more extreme positions than the the Rouhani government left them um, talks in June. Um, what do you think Iran's game plan is is in Vienna now?
1: Uh, I, I think that the the new administration is uh, focused on um, ob- obtaining. Uh, a- a, a more resilient JCPOA. Mm. Um, and I think that's their number one objective. Uh, they need to demonstrate that they've sort of won out the Rohani team and, and have gotten, uh, let's say it, insurance um, to protect the JCPOA. Mm. And I think that that is uh, going to be uh, their primary uh, focal point uh, going forward. Sanctions relief, of course, is, is hugely important. Uh, But there's probably uh, greater space for compromise there. Uh, But it's the assurance space that really requires um, creative thinking and international attention. Uh, So that's, you know, that's the game plan.
0: R- reports in in Iran this week kind of have said that the currency has depreciated fifteen um, percent since Raisi took office in in August, I think it was. Um, what is the state of the Iranian economy, and and how much is Iran's negotiation position in Vienna tied to it? Uh,
1: well, it's a very good question, actually, and one that I think. Um, uh, uh, we, we should really pick apart. The Iranian economy, of course, um, has been under significant pressure since sanctions were imposed. Um, there was a huge um, currency depreciation, uh, multiple currency depreciations, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, inflation um, is at all time high levels. Uh, Iranians um, are increasingly uh, feeling more poor. Um, there has been a, a, a huge shift um, among the middle class into the lower middle class or into poverty levels um, as well and, and that's deeply concerning. Um, but at the same time the Iranian um, establishment has invested uh, more uh, significantly in what they call the resistance economy and that economy um, is uh, designed to uh, create a greater self-sufficiency um, and a more uh, resilient uh, trade ties to um, to uh, neutralize the impact of uh, economic sanctions and protect Iran from uh, international pressure and, and you know make the economy less vulnerable. Um, and interestingly over the past two-year period, the Iranian economy has returned to marginal growth um, which is um, impacting I think, uh, uh, many conservatives in Iran, uh, um, who see uh, that the resistance economy strategy is uh, is actually working, um, and so this is important uh, to understand Iran's negotiating position. They're not going to accept a deal, a lesser deal, or a deal that uh, you know risks um, Iran's economy again. Um, and many people think that uh, sanctions relief is what is sort of driving and motivating uh, Iran's calculations at the negotiating table. I think that um, the conservative establishment um, see um, having survived maximum pressure that they can uh, continue to survive with the resistance economy. And that's a better strategy than the yo-yo effect and, and the vulnerability of opening up and engaging again, only to be uh, made vulnerable again, uh, you know, should another president come in and withdraw from the deal.
0: Fascinating. So do you think in, in, in light of that, the Iranians are, are more interested in, in kind of China's position in talks in Vienna and, and what they're saying than maybe even the E3 and, and the US? I think
1: the Iranians have uh, an appreciation for their relationship with China, it's longstanding and it's historical. And the Chinese have shown a willingness to understand um, Iran's need for insurance and assurances. Um, And and this is why I'm sort of doubling down on this issue. If some package of assurances can be creatively crafted, um, you know, this is the pathway uh, to create a sustainable JCPOA. It will probably need, a process of scaffolding and perhaps um, uh, incremental talks along the way. Um, But I think that is the pathway to uh, building back to a stronger, um, more durable JCPOA. And um, I think the Chinese and Russians have sympathy for the Iranian position um, and understand that uh, the risk of returning without assurances will make the Iranian um, political establishment more, more vulnerable over a longer period of time.
0: Just two kind of very quick questions before we move on to more regional um, aspects. How concerned should the international community be about Iran reaching a nuclear threshold status?
1: I think very concerned. Um, and I think that this should, you know, have us pause and reflect on whether, maximum pressure was uh, an effective policy mm. we've we've heard all sorts of messages including at very high levels within the israeli political establishment but also from bill burns the head of the cia you know that uh iran's nuclear advancements are concerning but iran has yet to maybe make the calculation uh to become a nuclear threshold state uh, we're in a dangerous moment and you know i think it's worthwhile remembering that the JCPOA was working and it, that the withdrawal from the JCPOA is what has gotten us into this situation.
0: And just lastly, uh, if the sides fail, and I know it's a big if, um, if they re- fail to reach an agreement, what do you think should be done um, to try and stop Iran maybe even reaching that, that threshold status?
1: I personally would just like to say I don't think it's in Iran's interest to reach that threshold status. Um And that's why um, I agree with the calculation that Iran hasn't made that decision. Um, Reaching that threshold, I I don't think would solve or address Iran's uh, security challenges and in fact might enhance them uh, because other regional states like Saudi Arabia or Turkey would definitely um, increase um, or accelerate uh, their own um, decisions to pursue nuclear weapons themselves, and that would, you know, neutralize the Iranian uh, position uh, right then and there. Um, but if the talks fall to the wayside, um, I, I, you know, I think plan B's um, within the uh, European and American context uh, can, can, can look like a less for less deal, which would freeze the conflict in the hope of, you know, uh, getting back and at, at, at negotiating, you um, or improving on the JCPOA, or there is, you know, the return to um, more stringent sanctions and, and the UN Security Council process. Um, and above all of that, of course, hovers um, the persistent um, threat of uh, Israeli attack, um, which I think all sides are are, are uh, looking to avoid because it would um, probably uh, draw in external actors uh, and and result in a, a broader regional conflict that uh, nobody really has appetite for. So again, this is why this moment is so critical, and actually why um, restoring the JCPOA, even if it is seen as a bad um, should be prioritized from all sides uh, because uh, the Plan Bs and uh, and the alternatives. Um, are really quite dangerous um, and and are not going to build a a, a resilient um, non-proliferation agreement with
0: Iran. Absolutely. Um, You mentioned there some of the states in the Gulf. Um, Maybe we can move on to the region. And there's been a lot of reconciliation happening between ideological foes. Um, UAE Crown Prince Mohammed bin Zayed was recently in Turkey. I believe Saudi Arabia Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman has been in Qatar. Um, the UAE, Jordan, Egypt are trying to mend ties with Syria. Um, It's a big question which I know is going to be hard to answer in a couple of minutes, but maybe you can help just to make sense of what's driving these events.
1: Sure. Yes, there's been an extraordinary amount of movement and um, it really appears that the region um, um, is sort of taking a pause and recalibrating after um, the apogee of tension that we really witnessed in 2019. Um, I think there are multiple factors that are driving um, de-escalation right now. Um, and I have to say, I'm not particularly confident that the de-escalation will prevail. Um, but the drivers are, of, um, I think an assessment, particularly in the Gulf, that um, maximum pressure actually brought um, uh, maximum pressure Maximum pressure Also, to the GCC states. If you recall, in 2019, um, Iran um, was behind destabilizing attacks in the port of Fujairah, um, in uh, the APRAIB attacks in uh, Saudi Arabia in September 2019. And I think these were game changers in um, uh, sort of challenging. the assumption in in the Gulf that the US would come uh, to the aid of GCC states. So that's one element that is really important. Um, Second, of course, COVID and and the economic challenges that have come over the past 18 months have perhaps led uh, Gulf states, and again here, particularly Saudi Arabia and the UAE, to reassess and and prioritize uh, their domestic um, positions. Uh, so uh, I, I think that there's a, a big element of um, domestic economic um, connectivity uh, to that of regional stability and, and frankly you can't really attract FDI um, and you can't build uh, a, a diversified um, economic um, uh, strategy if uh, their drones and missiles uh, going, you know, off (laughs) over your airspace every day. Um, So that's the second driver. And I think the third driver is, um, you know, deep questions about um, regional ties with the United States. There is a sense in the Middle East that the U.S. is distracted and prioritizing its domestic and geopolitical um, issues with China. And and this is um, leading, Many um, states to uh, hedge uh, against what they feel like is a US withdrawal from the region, even though that's not what's happening on the ground. Um, And so um, all of these states are uh, pursuing their bilateral and multilateral um, de escalation um, uh, pathways, um, you know, while we see what's gonna happen in Vienna. Um, And for the Saudis, for example, and also the Emiratis, I think that a hedging, let's say, with Iran is necessary regardless of what happens in Vienna because they can't afford another 2019. Um, But for other states like Turkey, um, the economic pressure that they're under um, is perhaps leading to a, a recalibration. Um, but I do see all of this as, as transitory right now and temporary right now, without some uh, the underlying security and strategic challenges being resolved or without seeing something on paper between all of these parties. Uh, um, the talks um, could just continue for the sake of talking. And, and you know, th- that's why I, I'm, I'm not sort of heralding uh, the, this, this uh, phase as um, a big shift. Um, it could lead to a big shift, but we're not quite there yet.
0: I wonder if we can just end up on, on the Abraham Accords. It'd be good to gauge your pulse on the Accords. It's been just over a year since since they were signed. Firstly, how do you think the region has responded to the Accords?
1: Uh, it's an interesting question. And, and and the Accords, I think, are a reflection of, of perhaps a regional concern about the United States. Um, I mean, of course, the, the Accords were shepherded by uh, the Trump administration um, and uh, there, there was you know maybe a period of uh, reticence uh, when the Biden administration came to power with regards to the accords, not with regards to the relationships. Um, but I think that you know the accords have moved um, away from let's say um, hinging uh, the normali- normalized countries to the United States, um, and in, and you know now the accords are sort of moving. Um, along let's say bilateral pathways, which of course make the Accords uh, sustainable and very attractive um, in in terms of commercial, economic and technology transfer um, opportunities. Um, On the strategic um, front though, I think that um, the direction of the Accords um, really remains still uncertain. We know that particularly the UAE and Israel share um, uh, maybe a vision for the region and share um, threat perceptions. Um, so there's a strategic linkage um, taking place, but tactically, the response to those threats um, are, are quite different. And, and the case in point is that of Iran, where the is. Israelis have, uh, you know, a very clear uh, targeted strategy, you know, often referred to as the shadow war uh, to constrain Iran's regional presence on Israeli borders, but also within within Iran itself, whereas the Emiratis are geographically and demographically um, challenged by, you know, their big northern neighbor. And, and the way that, you know, the pathway that they have opened up for themselves is to de-escalate. Um, doesn't mean that they don't see Iran as a Uh, A predatory state and a threatening menacing state Um, but uh, you know to fit in with their economic priorities and their diversification objectives uh, a de-escalation pathway you know is um, the best way forward for them.
0: Fascinating and just lastly are are you surprised that that no more countries have signed up to the accord since given that as you said, the bilateral relationships between Israel, Bahrain, UAE, Morocco have flourished so much. Are you surprised that no more countries have decided to sign up? And, and do you think there could be a, one or two more additions in 2022?
1: Um, I'm not surprised. Um, you know, the Accords came with a shopping list for most countries uh, yeah. that normalized. Um, and I don't see the Biden administration as a Uh, willing to um, indulge uh, regional states' shopping list, Um, and rather uh, for, let's say, the accords to broaden in in the current period that we are with, with this administration, Um, and perhaps going forward, I think it would require uh, regional states alongside Israel um, to take a greater investment, uh, not on the Iranian issue or on the uh, shared concerns of terrorist groups in the region, but actually the elephant in the room, which is Palestine. Mm. Um, for the accords to become uh, a, you know, a broader pattern, um, the Palestinian issue needs to be addressed.
0: Fascinating. Sanam, that was a really, uh, really great talk. Thank you so much for, for all your insights. And hopefully um, we can have you again on the Balkan podcast soon. But for now, thank you so much.
1: Thank you for having me. It was nice chatting with you.